Will you please turn with me in your Bibles once again this morning to the 51st Psalm where we are going to be looking together at verses 10 through 12. Psalm 51, 10 through 12. You can find that passage on page 555 in your pew Bibles. This morning, I would like to turn now to what is the third sermon in this series dealing with genuine biblical repentance from this wonderful classic psalm of King David, Psalm 51. And it is, of course, an excellent example of just what true gospel-driven repentance looks like. The more we dig into it, I think that we see that this example of repentance seems to be very different from what the church is willing to call repentance today. There is a seriousness here with David with regards to his sin and the absolute offense that it is before the face of a perfectly holy God. We see none of the tongue-in-cheek, often careless, indifferent kind of mentality towards sin that is so prevalent in the many different shades of easy believism that are swirling around the evangelical landscape today. David is clearly guilty of very heinous sin here. And we find him in this psalm being crushed under the weight of his sin. David knows that his his sole hope lies in the very promise of Almighty God to show mercy towards his children. His hope resides in the promise of an heir from the line of David who will ascend the throne of David who will, according to Almighty God Himself, rule for eternity. There's no finger pointing here. David is not pointing towards anyone but himself. Even in his agony, under the weight of his trespass, David is not looking towards God as bearing even a shred of responsibility for his transgression. David is truly repentant. And he himself owns the responsibility for all of his sin. Not just his sin of commission, but his sin of being, being born as a son of Adam. David knows that he certainly deserves to be cut off from the people of God. He knows that God would be entirely justified in carrying out just such a sentence against him personally. He has merited the wrath of God in his sin and he knows it. He has looked at himself considering God's most perfect and holy law and he's found himself to not simply be guilty in these individual particular instances but to be guilty perpetually. As long as the charge of total and complete obedience to the law is laid upon him. David knows that when it comes to righteousness he has been measured And found wanting. And he knows that even if he were to appear to be clean for a time, 
even a good long time. But Almighty God demands truth in the inward parts, the very parts of David that lie outside of his complete control. And beloved, if this beautiful, hopeful psalm ended right here, following his confession, we would all be left to just kind of sit back and hold our collective breath, wondering if a holy and altogether just and righteous God could ever possibly forgive such wickedness like what David had fallen into. Wickedness that, as I said, David traces all the way back to his conception when the sin nature of his father's father's was wholly and completely inherited by him. The sin of Adam passed on throughout the history of mankind to all his progeny. The wickedness that every single person sitting here this morning in the house of God is without a doubt carrying in their own flesh. It is a wickedness that is so deeply seated within us that if our hope of reconciliation relied in any way upon our own ability to run the course of this life as ironclad pictures of fidelity to God, then we truly would be people without hope. But David, having faithfully confessed his sin, turns then where indeed he must turn. He turns to the promises of God. And he trusts that his feelings, his emotions, though very real, pale in comparison to the truth of God's gracious promise to bring about what the law served as a shadow of, the perfect righteousness of God in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So far in this prayer of repentance, we see David having clearly been made aware of his sin, acknowledging it before the face of God. He then cries out to God, asking for complete, entire pardon, asking that God would give even his broken bones, bones which had been crushed under the weight of the hand of God, the opportunity to rejoice again. Asking God to grant to him the type of cleansing that the externals of the law could but point him towards. The washing of regeneration through the blood of the the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Having done this, David does not then simply dig down deep and promise to do better next time. I think we need to hear this. David does not write off his folly as a mere moment of human weakness. Just another mistake that surely God will find it within himself to forgive. No, David turns his eyes again to the Father and he begs for another miracle. Another supernatural work of God. Having acknowledged his sin and the need he has for God to purify him from within, David shifts from pleading for pardon and he asks God to do what he could never accomplish on his own. 
And that is that he would be made new. This morning, I want to look more closely at this shift here in the prayer of David. And my hope, beloved, is that we would find answers to our own questions, questions that we certainly all raise in light of our own sin and the biblical repentance that we all so desire and need. After assuring himself of pardon through trusting in the gracious promises of God, David shifts his focus to the life to come. Not simply life far off at some point in the future in eternity in glory, but even in the days, the moments immediately following this prayer of repentance. As David prays for his sanctification to come about like his justification through the gracious and sovereign hand of Almighty God alone. So we're going to look at the Word of God together. I'd like you to follow along as I read from the inerrant, infallible, and holy Word of God this morning, Psalm 51, verses 10 through 12. Hear now the Word of our Lord. This is David in his prayer. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. This is the word of our Lord and may he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful for the opportunity that we have each Lord's Day to come and to sit under the preaching of your word. And we pray, Father, that your Spirit would attend that this morning. Pray that your spirit would speak to our hearts this morning the truth of your word and through the power of your spirit that we would hear that word and be transformed by that word for your glory. Give us clarity, Father, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have certainly talked a lot recently about justification. Sanctification is one of those words that I think is very often misunderstood, even perhaps shrouded in controversy in the evangelical church through its history. It's often wrongly lumped together with our justification and just sort of used interchangeably with it. In fact, perhaps the most common error with regards to our sanctification in the evangelical landscape in our own country is the idea Or the notion that our sanctification, that our being conformed into the image of God, wrestling with the sins of this life, even while covered by Christ's perfect righteousness, really is equal to our justification. In other words, if we fall into gross sin, we, according to this confusion of the truth of the word of God, we lose our justification due to our lack of fidelity to God. And so we have need of being justified again. So justification and sanctification become one and the same thing. It's the error of Arminianism. A doctrine of salvation which takes the glory in our salvation away from God as its sole proprietor and places it 
in a mixed bag consisting of both God and man somehow working together towards the ultimate goal of our salvation. But of course, in the Reformed faith, we confess no such thing. It is God, and it is God alone who receives all of the glory in man's salvation. This was one of the five solas that we put on the bulletin every week. One of the five solas, the great cries that issued forth in the Protestant Reformation, soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Thankfully, we can guard against falling into this error by looking, of course, to our confessions. And our confessions are very clear that in both our justification and in our sanctification, it is Almighty God alone who is glorified and never man. Speaking specifically about our justification, the Heidelberg Catechism in questions 59 and 60 make this very clear. Having just gone through and explained the clear meaning of every line that we confess in the Apostles' Creed, the Catechism asks this follow-up question in question 59. In light of everything you just said, in light of everything you just confessed, what does it help you that you believe all this? It's a good question. In other words, having just told me what you confess in the creed in detail, how is any of that a real help to you who really believe it? And the answer, and the sum of our justification is this, that I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir of eternal life. That is, because I have been given faith in these things by God's grace, I am now considered perfectly righteous before God because of my union with Jesus Christ by faith. And now by faith, trusting in these things, I am an heir to every blessing of eternal life. One of the things I love about the Heidelberg Catechism is that it assumes the next question to come from the student or the questioner, and it asks it as a means of setting up the proper answer. So the natural question then that comes out of 59 and the declaration that through faith in Jesus Christ I am made righteous is question 60. How are you righteous before God? Another good question. We have here only one of our confessions, all of which give very good, very thorough descriptions of our justification. And this is one that I know many of you know by heart. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. That is, although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have never kept any of them, and am still prone always to all evil, yet God, without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. As if I had never committed, nor had any sin, and had myself accomplished all of the obedience which Christ has fulfilled for me, if only I accept such benefit 
with a believing heart. My justification is the declaration that I have on account of Christ's righteousness been declared as clean, innocent, and altogether not guilty by God himself. In other words, because Jesus Christ and his righteousness have been imputed me Imputed to me through faith, I have been justified by the justifier, Almighty God. Sanctification follows justification, and we have some light on it in a couple of the questions from the Catechism as well. Question 86. Since then, we are redeemed from our misery by grace through Christ. In other words, since we are justified, without any merit of ours, why should we do good works? Since we are justified by grace alone, what need do we really have for sanctification? What need do we have for doing any good works at all? And the answer is because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit after his own image, sanctification, that with our whole life we show ourselves thankful to God and his blessings, and that he may be glorified through us, then also that we ourselves may be assured of our faith by the fruits thereof and by our godly walk when others to Christ. You understand the distinction. The confessions really are very clear on this cloudy subject. It seems to be so clouded when anyone ever talks about it. Our sanctification flows out of the supernatural work of God, not out of of our own work. Again, the Belgic Confession, Articles 23 through 25, the Canons of Dort, both the third and fourth heads of doctrine. Read those, you're going to find the exact same thing. Now, I can tell by the way you're looking at me. Maybe you're, you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, oh, come on, Steve. Justification and sanctification again? I thought we were going to look at David and his repentance in Psalm 51. I know what we confess. I've been through catechism class. By the way, what do our confessions even have to do with Psalm 51? What do theological terms like justification and sanctification have to do with true, genuine, biblical repentance? Well, the answer is everything. They have everything to do with it. Please do not make the mistake of thinking that having a good confession and living like you truly believe it are the same thing. And though as good Reformed folk, we may have avoided the errors of men like Pelagius and Arminius, I want to tell you men like N.T. Wright and Norman Shepard have made some of these errors and they've come from within our own camps. Errors like the new perspectives on Paul and the misunderstanding of the law-gospel distinction that appeared in all of the various forms of theonomy and reconstruction theology all came from, at the very least, reform-leaning men. Men who would say that at one point they were in line with the Reformed confessions. But these are only the extremes, of course, We know those are dangerous. 
However, I'm afraid that this same error shows up in other dangerous and devastating ways with us. Ways that are much too subtle to draw the attention of the theological world. And so we quietly do things like taking blatant moralism and attaching it to or adding it to the gospel. We know enough to slam the front door of justification and the awful face of legalism when it shows up. We say, oh, no, you don't. It's through Christ alone, by faith alone, because of the grace of God alone that I am justified. Don't you come in here trying to rob God of his glory in the justification of a sinful person like me? No, sir, not on my watch. Then we immediately turn around and fling open the back door of our sanctification and we welcome our good friend legalism to waltz right in, wearing a very pious-looking mask. Having attributed our justification to God and to him alone, we welcome the opportunity to return to the law as a means of letting God know just exactly what it is that we're doing for him and why he should be pleased in our sanctification. Beloved, does that sound familiar? It should. Our flesh longs to return to the law and let the world glorify us for a while as they look to the externals that we have achieved. Certainly, God would not mind me taking just a little bit of the glory. Again, what does this have to do with David and repentance? Well, David began this prayer lamenting his sin before God. He then pleads with God for mercy and full pardon from that sin, all the while admitting that he truly deserves only wrath, that he stands guilty by birth birth, even when he's at his personal best. David pleads for his justification, the declaration that David, despite what David knows himself to be, would be found not guilty on account of his having been purified with the blood that far exceeded the blood of bulls and sheep. A blood that can only be delivered from the very hand of God through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. David pleads to be cleansed with water far, far more powerful than the water of the ceremonial washings contained within the law of God. We talked about it last week. We need to see it. He prays to be washed inwardly with the only thing that could ever truly leave him whiter than snow, completely cleaned, the blood of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous, the one whom the spotless lamb or goat could only from the the dark shadows point us to. David prayed that in and through the person and work of Jesus, he would be made clean before the throne of God's judgment. David prayed that by grace, he would be justified. And now we look at verses 10 through 12 and we see David's petition does not end with his justification, does it? We need to see it. His repentance changes gears a bit as he moves on from his justification and he begins to pray for his sanctification, which is also completely, entirely rooted 
in the magnificent grace of Almighty God. And he does so with four specific petitions mentioned here in this text. And I think we will see that David knows that he is just as reliant upon the grace of God for his sanctification as he is for his justification. His first petition for his sanctification is there in verse 10 when he says, Create in me a new heart, O God. It's the very same Hebrew word there that appears in the Genesis account of creation. David knows that his problem goes much farther than just acquiring pardon for the specific sins that he had fallen into with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah, even the despicable cover-up that came after that. Even if forgiven those things, if forgiven from his external sin entirely, David rightly understands that his corruption is from within. And though he may master some of those externals, his depravity is so complete that if left to himself, he will always pursue sin. So his problem goes beyond his need to be justified. He needs to be sanctified. He needs to be changed from within by the same grace of God in which he first found pardon. David acknowledges that he is a fallen creation and that if there is to be any hope at all in his bringing glory to God with his breath of a life, he would need to be created new from within. Beloved, if you find yourself wrestling with repentance, then I want you to know that this is something that we must come to grips with. We need to see it. Mere outward obedience will never be enough. The first step in David's sanctification was not for him to simply return from his knowledge, his encounter with Nathan the prophet, his knowledge of his sins stronger, wiser, with a more resolute will than he had before he fell. But he needed by the grace of God to be recreated from within. He needed not more strength to control his old heart. He needed not to be cleaner in Adam. But he needed a new heart. He needed made new in the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. You understand the difference? It is as vast as the difference between night and day. One is not at all like the other. Jesus made this point to Nicodemus when when questioned about the new birth. He said in John 3, speaking to Nicodemus regarding being born again, what is from flesh is flesh, but what is born of the Spirit is the Spirit. And unless one is reborn, recreated by the Spirit of God, he cannot be born again. The new birth is itself the gift of God and can never come about as a result of the flesh simply being reined in. What is of the flesh is flesh and will always be flesh until Christ resurrects us anew in glorified bodies. 
The work of this kind of creation can only come by the grace of God and by his powerful, omnipotent hand. And David knows it. David trusts not in himself to do better, but in God who can create things new. God who alone has the power to both create and recreate. Paul reminds us of it in his second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 5, verse 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The first petition of David for his sanctification is firmly rooted in his absolute reliance upon God and his mercy alone, by his grace alone, given through his spirit alone in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. It's with confidence in the promises of God that David approaches his throne and asks for a new heart to be given for his sanctification and for God's glory. The second petition is like the first in that it too is an absolute reliance upon the grace of God. It comes in the form of King David asking God to renew a right and steadfast spirit within him. David's confidence has been shaken to the core as he comes to the realization that his sin is always at the door. He is aware of his absolute corruption. And through his willing acts of treachery, he has become plagued with an acute sense of his guilt. He's probably become overwhelmed by weariness and his lament over his sin. His joy has been removed. And the only thing that he can focus on is not the joy of salvation. Not the joy of what is given him as the child of God, but the wrath that he knows he deserves. We can relate to that, right? I don't even need to ask you. If you are a child of God this morning, you can relate to that. No matter what you look like to everyone else. We fall into sin, even willingly. And what happens? The joy of our salvation gets cloudy. Our consciences tend to accuse us continually. And we, like Adam and Eve, go to scrambling on the ground looking for something to cover up our nakedness. David prays that Almighty God would renew a right spirit, a steadfast spirit within him. He prays that he would not be consumed by the knowledge of what he is in his sin before the face of a holy God. But having glimpsed his own wretchedness, David prays that he would again have his eyes turned away from what he deserves, away from what he feels, and pointed towards the truth of the mercy of God and the fruition of his promise, the Lord Jesus Christ. We all with David trusting God for our sanctification upon acknowledgement of our sin should pray that he would renew a steadfast spirit within us. The third plea of David for his sanctification is that God in his mercy would not cast him away from his holy, his holy presence or take his Holy Spirit from him. 
It's only the Holy Spirit of God that gives men eyes that truly see and ears that truly hear. Though David knows that he has merited the removal of God's presence and his spirit, he prays that God in his infinite mercy and in his covenant faithfulness would not let it continue to be so. David understands that his spiritual well-being, his inclination towards hope, relied upon the very spirit of God guiding him and directing him, embracing him as he is, never casting him away, or he would indeed be lost. David knows that the spirit of God is holy and that he is a sinner and that his sin has no place with the holy. So he prays once again that he would not receive that which he has earned, but the mercy of Almighty God. And the fourth and final petition then flows out of the third. That is that by the grace of God, David would have the joy of his salvation back. Having fallen into gross external sin, David's focus had become his sin continually. Again, beloved, I trust we relate to that. The alcoholic who cannot stop drinking often thinks that the only way to beat that sin is to spend his entire life being consumed with that one thing. So the focus of his life becomes the number of days or weeks or months or years that he has refrained from that one thing. It's the same with the one taken up in pornography or adultery or lust or anger or whatever sin you want to throw into the mix. But true sanctification is not found simply in the externals, but in the internal. David asked not to become so aware of his sin that he could never possibly fall into error again. He asked, trusting in the promise of Almighty God to be recreated, renewed, and restored. And having made his plea to God for his sanctification, David acknowledges that the only way he will be upheld in this life is through his being acutely aware of the generous spirit of Almighty God so that he could spend his life gratefully rejoicing in it. Joyful gratitude for his salvation, working as the motivation for his sanctification in this life. Beloved, do you see it? What do all of these petitions for David's sanctification have in common? Well, they're all rooted in the glorious grace of Almighty God. We have confidence that just like we have confidence that just like we are justified because of Jesus Christ and his righteousness alone so we are sanctified by him through his spirit alone for his glory alone and far from ever seeking our glory in this life the truly penitent like David fall upon the mercy of God and being so grateful for that mercy, they cannot do anything other than sing his praises. Placing all of the glory and their salvation entirely upon him and him alone. 
The reason that we are so inclined to steal that glory for ourselves is because we still think in our flesh that God needs us to be busy for him by bringing attention to ourselves. By impressing everyone around us with our work. By aiding in the whole sanctification process. We think in our flesh that that is somehow glorifying to God and so we cling to this to whatever system of the gospel and that we can dream up. Rather than resting in the Lord Jesus Christ, this life becomes the gospel and whatever it is that I'm going to do for God. Becomes the gospel in social action, the gospel in my discipline routine, the gospel in my various and sundry Bible studies, the gospel in my apparent modesty, which is better than yours. The gospel in my manifest righteousness, the gospel in whatever it is that you think you do so wonderfully for God. But the truly penitent rest in the gospel. And it's enough. The truly penitent like David knows that if it in any way counts upon him and upon his abilities to be justified or sanctified, that he will, beloved, we will always fail. The truth is when we do that, the only thing that we are really bringing is the gospel and our filthy rags. We must, like David, acknowledge that our complete glorious salvation is entirely of grace. And that God loves us because he chose to, despite what we truly are as his children. He does not want our lives to be defined by whatever peculiar things it is that we bring to the gospel. But he calls us to rest in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and spend our lives gratefully rejoicing, singing to him, Because the only thing that we all bring to the table in the entire spectrum of our salvation is our sin and our guilt and our shame. Will you be comforted by the gospel of Jesus Christ and joyfully rest in it? Will you trust him alone with every single aspect of your salvation, knowing that for your sake, listen to the word of God, it is he who is working in you through the blood of the everlasting covenant, making you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Beloved in Christ, if your repentance is legitimate, then you certainly will. Amen.